Cruz. And now, your daily dose of debate, breaking news, and uncensored views. This is the Michael Medved Show. And another great day in this greatest nation on God's green earth. A great day when maybe, just maybe, the elections of last night have clarified some aspects of what's going on in the United States of America. Uh, have clarified in the sense of where we need to focus, what we need to do better, what we need to do differently. Frank Luntz has been an expert on elections and what they mean and actually how to win them. He has been a, uh, a consultant uh, and commentator uh, around the world on every major network. And one of the people who has helped shape the modern Republican Party and some of its greatest successes with his advice on communication. Uh, Dr. Luntz has been uh, everywhere and uh, won uh, the Emmy Award in 2001. What did what specifically was uh, your Emmy about, Frank? Because that's uh, a, a notable distinction for a conservative commentator. Well, it was the only award that MSNBC won that year, and it was <laughs> for my segments "A Thousand uh, Hundred Days, A Thousand Voices." About the 2000 election, we went out on the road just after the 4th of July and spent the last three months of the campaign interviewing people, 26 states, 1,200 interviews, and it was a really popular segment for MSNBC, and it also aired on CNBC. Brian Williams used it, uh, and frankly, I miss those days because back then, people were more interested in what Americans had to say you don't get to hear that point of view anymore. It's all the pundits. It's not the people. And I, frankly, I missed that. This is a perfect setup for what I wanted to talk to you about, Frank. And, and, and again, we didn't set it up deliberately. It's just you gave the answer on 2001. 2001, people were reacting to genu genuinely one of the closest, most controversial, most difficult to resolve elections in all of American history. Uh, ultimately, it was 527 votes in the state of Florida that uh, changed the outcome of the election. It was vastly closer, vastly more rightly contested, that election, on both sides than anything that happened in 2020. Uh, and yet, the voices you talked to back in 2001 between Bush and Gore in this crazy close election wasn't decided till December. Uh, people pretty much accepted the decision, didn't they? They accepted it. Well, let's let's. I'm glad you asked that question because one third of Democrats did not accept that decision, and you had people like Jesse Jackson and Al Sharpton who wanted to continue the fight. You had some people, the Democratic National Committee that were not prepared to accept the information. You had members of Congress that were challenging, challenging it on the floor of the House and the Senate. And the same thing happened in 2004 when the president got reelected, when President Bush got reelected, and they challenged Ohio, and they said that the election had been stolen then. So what happened so-called forensic audit? And they come back saying that, yeah, 
there might have been a problem with a dozen votes, 15 votes, 30 votes, maybe even 100 votes. And in state after state, these so-called forensic audits came back saying that there was no corruption, that the election was decided accurately and correctly. And I remind people who are so upset over this that it was the first presidential debate that that was the reason why Donald Trump lost the election, that we had never seen someone so rude, so abusive, interrupting, ignoring, acting like we would punish our children if we behaved that way. That was the moment that Donald Trump lost the election, not on election night. And in terms of the results of the election, uh, in, in Arizona, election deniers seem to have won a clean sweep. And just to put this in context, Florida, which is a much more populous state, it's almost three times the population of Arizona. And uh, Arizona, uh, Trump uh, uh, lost the state by... Uh, 13,000, 14,000 votes. And uh, Al Gore lost Florida, much bigger state, by 527 votes. Uh, the, the idea of fighting over these votes, is, is that going to be for the newly nominated Republican candidates for governor, for senator, uh, for the secretary of state's job, for attorney general? Is it going to be a winning strategy to tell people that vote for us and we'll redo the 2020 election somehow, which seems to be what Carrie Lake is saying? Absolutely not. If you can't afford to put food on your table because the prices have just gotten so sky high, if you can't afford to put gas in your car because of our ridiculous energy policies, if you can't even afford to buy that car because of our trade policies, if you're having trouble affording your home, if you can't move even though your family situation has changed, every aspect of our life has been impacted by affordability over the last six months. And every aspect of our life over the next six months will be affected by it. And we've got that. We've got trouble at the border. We've got senseless crime that's happening across the country and they want to litigate what happened two years ago as though that's a winning strategy the american people aren't looking backward it's not part of our culture and you know this michael you know this better than anyone on radio because you're a cultural you this is who you are the american culture is to look forward not backward the american culture is to have hope for the future, but treat the present in a commonsensical way. I don't understand why these people are ignoring the biggest issues that matter to people that are affecting their quality, their day-to-day life, because they want to relitigate something that every single judge, every court, every independent observer has said, we looked at it, we examined it, and there just isn't any. But it's the same thing on the left. They keep talking about voter suppression. 
Every human being who wanted to vote voted in 2020. Every person who wanted to participate had their chance. They could vote online. Uh, they could vote uh, by mail. They could vote absentee. They could vote early. They could vote and, day after day after day. And, and that's what everybody should welcome. Um, I mean, again, uh, this is the one good thing I've found as, as somebody who is pro-life. I mean, the thing, the vote in Kansas, they had a huge turnout. People came out and voted. Uh, what about that? And why was it that uh, Kansas, such a conservative state, seemed to take a pro-choice, a pro-abortion position that no one predicted or expected. We will get to that and to more about what happened in the primaries with the one, the only, the incomparable Frank Luntz. Dr. Luntz will be back with us coming right up. And on the Michael Medved Show, honored to be joined by Dr. Frank Luntz, one of the most honored communication professionals in um, America today, and actually for a full generation. He has written, supervised, and conducted more than 2,500 surveys, focus groups, ad tests, and dial sessions in more than two dozen countries on six continents. Uh, you haven't done focus groups in Antarctica? Is that the problem, Frank? I couldn't get any penguins to participate. The incentive wasn't <laughs> high enough. Okay. Uh, we were just talking a little bit about the stubborn uh, refusal, really, to come to terms with reality by a lot of our fellow Americans. And you're absolutely right that it's on both sides. It's on all sides. It's concerning all kinds of things that ought to be obvious. I still get sent articles and books and supposed research papers from people who think the earth is flat. I, I, I know people think that's a joke, but it's not. Uh, there are tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands, I hope not millions of people who still think that there's a conspiracy to fool people, uh, suggesting that the earth is round. Okay, we don't have to debate that. But one of the things that happened in this election yesterday that was actually good, even in Arizona, where the results were so strange, but uh, Ron Watkins, who was probably the guy who initiated QAnon, uh, did incredibly poorly. He got only—he was a candidate for Congress. He got only uh, 4% of the vote and uh, basically wiped out. But there are still millions of Americans who believe in that QAnon nonsense about a cabal of Satan-worshipping blood drinkers and cannibals and child molesters who actually uh, run the, the whole world and dominate our country. They're members of Congress uh, from uh, Georgia and from Colorado and who, who give credence to the QAnon thing. We seem to be so hooked on these conspiracy theories. What is the best way for our leadership and for our media, Frank, to counteract some of the nonsense and paranoid nonsense that people take very seriously? And I understand why they take it seriously, because there isn't a week that goes by when I don't send a story that I pick up on the web to someone I trust ask whether or not this is any validity at all. 
whether in Ukraine there were these bio labs that the U.S. was using secretly to develop chemical weapons. Uh, the, the QAnon theories, although most of them are so ridiculous that, that I don't need any kind of professional help for that. <laughs> but I understand how, how people doubt because you go on the web, you can't tell the difference between a real website and a fake one. You can't tell the difference uh, when, they're, when they use the words breaking news and it looks just like a CNN or Fox News headline. And in the end, you just have to use your judgment. And we are asking the American people in a country whose schools have barely ranked in the top 20 for decades now to use the judgment of their education and their common sense to be able to separate fact from fiction. I, so step number one is to hold those social media sites accountable who are publishing knowingly uh, inaccurate and dangerous information and seeking to pass it off as fact. The problem is you and I both agree, believe in freedom of speech, freedom to publish, freedom to disagree. We both have a healthy skepticism towards what we are told by the elites. But skepticism and cynicism are two different things. And cynicism and out-and-out lies are, are radically different. There are three areas. There are three things that I say to people when they take something from the web. Number one is look at how many people are on the site or how many people have commented. If it's 10 or 15 people, it's not real. When I'm engaged in communicating on social media, I'm getting comments from thousands of people, not 12. So if it's a website that only 12 people are commenting on, it's probably not real. Number two is that I look for verification from people who you can actually verify that they said it or wrote it or believed it. And three, I want to see it, not just read it. I want my proof to be visual, not just verbal, uh, because we've learned how to mislead people. We've learned how to, to lie to them in writing. But it's harder to lie to them when you actually can see and touch uh, uh, the so-called whatever, whatever you're, you're debating. So I think those are the three ways that your listeners can make a difference. But I got a recommendation for you, Tristan Harris. He has something called, and I, I, I don't remember the exact name, but it, it's the ethics. He was the first, first ethicist at Google. Tristan Harris understands social media better than anyone. He's a much better speaker than I am. He's better at language than I am. He's smarter than I am. And I would urge listeners, write that name down, Tristan Harris, Google him, because he's done a number of documentaries that really do expose the dangers and challenges of social media in general and things like Instagram and YouTube in particular. If we're going to tackle this problem, and we have to, it's going to be people like him who do it. Wow. Uh, okay, that's a very specific recommendation. In terms of what Republicans need to do, you already talked about focusing on the way people live and the kitchen table issues. And I would add to that uh, something else you alluded to, which is the education issues. Um, I mean, we have Glenn Youngkin, who is governor of Virginia now, largely because he challenged the idea of uh, curricula um, poisoning kids minds against their country and I think 
trying to promote an accurate patriotic uh, approach to educating our children should be fundamental and very popular. Though it seems as if a lot of Republicans have dropped that issue. Why is that? Well, I don't think they dropped it. I think that they felt that education was a local issue or a state issue, and they didn't want to take the national limelight and make education into a national issue. You don't want the people who deliver your mail to tell you what to do educating your kids. If they can't get a letter at this point in life, if they can't get a letter to you from one part of your state to another, then I don't want them making the decisions (laughs) on what our kids should be taught. Second, and you brought it up, And once again, we're on the same page. The dumbest comment made in 2021 was Terry McAuliffe saying we have to protect school boards from parents. And that's what lit people up. The idea that they were being told that Washington knows better or the state government knows better. We have to be talking about education, but in terms of learning, not teaching, in terms of our students being successful in college, career, and real life. And we have to get parents back involved in that process. Okay, and there's some good news. There's some good news being transmitted by several studies about millennial dads who supposedly are spending more time with their kids. We'll get to that and more with Frank Luntz coming up on The Medved Show. And on the Michael Medved Show, Frank Luntz has made a sterling career out of taking the pulse of Americans, of figuring out what it is that we are feeling, that we are saying, uh, how it is we want our country to change, and that aspect of American life, those aspects of American life that we want to preserve and defend. And in this regard, Frank, I, I, I was struck by... Uh, a a just a fleeting headline, and then I sort of dived into it a little bit and found out that it is actually reflecting studies that have been coming out for more than four years that have this punchline, which is dads are spending three times as much time with their children. This is small children primarily than they did. 50 years ago, from 25 minutes per day in the 1960s to 75 minutes per day in modern times. Okay, first of all, do you believe it? And do you believe, as I think most people do, is that the idea that uh, fathers are taking more time to be with their children, even doing things that I was never particularly proficient at or eager about, like changing diapers. Um, My wife with with her PhD is an expert at changing diapers, and I wouldn't presume to step in and uh, take take that responsibility away from her. But generally, do you think that this observation, that one of the positive developments in our country is that dads are spending more time with their kids, millennial dads in particular, does that uh, have the ring of truth to you? It does, and it is so important. It is so vital. Uh, And it's because 50 years ago, culturally, it was considered a 
not, not necessarily an advantage, but you were proud that you got to work before everybody else. And you were proud that you stayed at work longer than everyone else. And you used to judge your success in life by talking about outworking your colleagues, outworking your competitors. And now dads are judged by how many games they make, not how many games they miss, uh, how they can talk about the father-daughter relationships rather than them missing out on these finer things or on these special things in life. So it does ring true to me. I'll tell you this, and I'm going to tell you a story that I – I've never said publicly before in the black community and the Latino community, but particularly the black community, there are so many children, particularly young boys who grow up without a father figure, without an adult, a male adult in their lives. And what I have found in my research is that the most popular person in the school is the black male professor, uh, the teacher, someone who, who, who explains to the, to the, these Uh, young boys, what proper behavior is, how to respect one another, how not to fight with one another, how to uh, pull up your pants and tie your tie and and how to work in in civil society. And these boys don't have someone like that at home, and the moms are so grateful. So I'm doing a focus group, a gentleman who is very progressive in his politics, but nevertheless clearly – loved teaching and loved being this role model for his students. I complimented him for his action because I knew that his students, I could tell how much his students loved him. And two female teachers started ripping into me. (laughs) How dare I show any kind of gender bias that they're just as important for young boys that they can handle themselves just as well, and they're insulted by it. Well, first off, they're not black. Secondly, they're not men. And third is there are a gazillion of them. There aren't enough black male teachers teaching young men, uh, particularly in difficult environments, and establish themselves as role models, as mentors. And I've never forgotten that. And I say this to you now because Men being involved in the lives of particularly boys didn't happen, and I think that's one of the reasons why I have the trouble we have now. And I pray to God that this is not short-term, but that this is a permanent development. Yeah, and what's interesting about it is when you look at these breakdowns of where it is that this time is coming from, it's not because people are working less primarily it's that they are wasting time less and that this is this is one of those things that i think is too much underappreciated about one of the big changes in american life that even while we are spending uh, vastly more time on social media and basically on the internet and even with video games the one thing that uh, really we have turned away from to some extent is just sitting down and watching TV which is a totally passive element when I did my book Hollywood versus America was 1992 uh, the typical American was spending 37 hours a week watching television which is incredible and uh, that 
that seems to be uh, at, at least um, part of what is going on. It's uh, kind of easier to get someone's attention when even you're, you're on your phone or you're on your device than uh, when somebody is uh, gripped by watching some kind of favorite TV show. Well, the, uh, that's not the only change. And COVID did one thing for us, one good thing, which is gave us all the same shared experiences. We all went home. We all discovered our families. We discovered them. Kids returned for the first time, even adult kids. Families cocooned together. And while we siloed, which wasn't a good thing, the fact that we reengaged with our families was an outstanding thing. Now, we had more divorces as wives and husbands realized that they really didn't like each other when they spent so much time together. But we had so many examples of families coming together. And that has completely changed what we look at life. And it's not the great resignation that is not correct. It is the great rethink. Our lifestyles have changed. Where we get our news has changed. Uh, well, which is which is so which is so important. And let me ask you, in a conclusion, two directly related questions. Number one: Are Americans in a recession? And number two: Who are going to be the likely presidential choices, Democrat, Republican, in 2024? Okay. Well, the second one: It will not be Joe Biden. I will promise you that. There is no way that he will run. He can't. On the Republican side, I think Donald Trump is the is at this moment the front runner. But you got to look at Ron DeSantis because in the key states, Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Florida, the man is moving and his popularity is increasing. As far as recession, if you can't afford to fill up your gas tank, that's a recession. That's a recession. If you can't put meat on the table more than once a week, that's a recession. The affordability crisis is real. And the economy, yes, we have high employment and people are making more money, but they're spending that much more. And why this president argues over the definition of inflation or the definition of recession, that's why he's so unpopular. Stop fighting over definitions and start helping people survive. Which is always good advice. You didn't name someone on the Democratic side, just not Biden. Do you think it's Gavin Newsom? I think Gavin Newsom will be a front runner. I also think you're going to see someone like Gretchen Whitmer from Michigan. Uh, I could see Mitch Landrieu, who is the former mayor of New Orleans. I think we're going to have a free-for-all on both sides. Uh, strap yourself in, because it's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> it very well may be, and Frank Luns will be there to cover it for all of us. We've posted some of his most recent commentary up at our website at michaelmedved.com. We'll be right back with um, the loss of somebody who was one of... One of the terms that has become popular recently is the term GOAT, as in G-O-A-T, as in greatest of all time. I mean, when people think of the GOAT, they uh, well very frequently think of Tom Brady when it comes to his status as uh, very arguably the greatest quarterback of all time. Uh, we lost um, uh, another GOAT uh, a week ago, and uh, that was 
Bill Russell, uh, incomparable basketball star, a great gentleman, and actually for many years since we moved here, um, uh, living a neighbor. I mean, living in the same neighborhood as as we we are blessed to live in. In any event, Bill Russell, great player, great coach, uh, and nobody better, nobody that ever won eight NBA championships in a row consecutively. In the same category was uh, Vin Scully, who uh, I grew up uh, listening to. So many of you did. I grew up listening to him because in... San Diego, you could still get where where I was spent most of my childhood. We you could still get Vin Scully broadcast, and I was a Phillies fan. This is before San Diego even had a major league team; they had the minor league Padres. But Vin Scully was the voice of the Dodgers. He was the voice of the Dodgers. He's a Brooklyn boy, and uh, he began broadcasting with the Dodgers and the era when Sandy Koufax was first coming up and you had those great Dodger teams and continued uh, really until a couple of years ago. He just passed away at the age of 94. And somebody like that, a voice on the radio like that can be magical. And I used to pick up Dodgers games when the Phillies were playing because having been born in Philadelphia as a Phillies fan and so much that I remember about Vin Scully one thing that sticks in my mind is there was a, a catcher for the Phillies pretty good I mean actually kind of a mediocre player but his name was Clay Dalrymple and I remember Vin Scully saying boy he got a click out and now uh, Clay Dalrymple is coming to the plate I've always thought that's such a great name. It's a Clayton Dalrymple. It sounds like a Confederate cavalry officer. It's just such a brilliant thing to say, and he was right about it. This is the way that the great late Vin Scully uh, covered one of the most famous at-bats in all World Series history with Kirk Gibson coming to the plate for the Dodgers. Listen to uh, clip three. He answered the demands until he was physically unable to start tonight with two bad legs, the bad left hamstring and the swollen right knee. He's trying to catch lightning right now. Three and two. High fly ball into right field. She is gone. Okay, and then uh, a very different kind of call, uh, sort of something that Boston Red Sox fans never forget. It's the Bill Buckner call, another World Series, where the Red Sox were getting ready to to break the curse, and then this happened. This is clip four. So the winning run is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie. Little roller up along first. Behind the bag. It gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it.
And then he talked on deeper subjects, too. Uh, this was a commentary offered while a player stepped to the plate who happened to be a native of Venezuela. Listen, clip one. Socialism failing to work as it always does, this time in Venezuela. You talk about giving everybody something free and all of a sudden there's no food to eat. And who do you think is the richest person in Venezuela? The daughter of Hugo Chavez. Hello. Anyway, 0 and 2. And uh, then his sign off for the last time from being a Dodgers broadcaster. Clip 2. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. For every problem life seems a faithful friend to share, for every sigh a sweet song, and an answer for each prayer. You and I have been friends for a long time, but I know in my heart that I've always needed you more than you've ever needed me. And I'll miss our time together more than I can say. But you know what? There will be a new day and eventually a new year. And when the upcoming winter gives way to spring, oh, rest assured, once again, it will be time for Dodger baseball. So this is Vin Scully wishing you a very pleasant good afternoon wherever you may be. And uh, Vin Scully, uh, bless you for so many years and so many hours of uh, astonishingly uh, entertaining, warm, and uh, accessible, frankly, incomparable broadcasting. And yeah, I know there are a lot of great broadcasters for a lot of great franchises. Dave Niehaus was phenomenal for the Mariners uh, until his passing. But um, but Vin Scully, someone who will be remembered. Now, I am not sure that Rebecca Hall will be remembered as one of the greatest actresses of all time, but she's certainly one of the most competent and consistently skilled actresses around today. But she's in a new movie that is very controversial, and it is called, I don't know why, but it is called Resurrection. Listen. Now it's time for Medved's Entertainment Minute. Rebecca Hall plays a sophisticated businesswoman and single mother who is suddenly haunted by a man from her distant past played by Tim Roth in the grotesque and disturbing horror film Resurrection. Now playing in theaters. The life we made was perfect. Come after me. Come after my child. I swear to God, I will kill you. Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth are both superb actors who give their all to this preposterous project, which never resolves whether its nightmarish revelations are hallucinatory or real. You care enough about the main character so that spending an hour with her on the edge of madness can make the audience mad as well in the sense of angry. Not officially rated, but it deserves an H, as in hideous. One and a half stars for Resurrection. And, uh... Okay, it's it's bad enough when you have QAnon talking about plots about um, uh, bleeding and molesting and eating um, babies. Um, <laughs> need I say more? Uh, this is a very, very tough film to recommend, and I would su submit that uh, actually sitting through the entire thing 
to the uh, completely confusing and meaningless conclusion is uh, a sacrifice not worth making. Okay, but what are sacrifices worth making uh, by the United States on behalf of Taiwan? Uh, very few people know more about the past and the present of uh, Taiwan than Gordon Chang. He's going to be joining us and maybe talking about the future of that embattled island nation and why it matters so much to the United States. A.B. Stoddard of Real Clear Politics has been taking a look at the primaries and also the expected red wave. Are there reasons to uh, put a question mark after that expected red wave or more reasons to see it as virtually certain? And the Pennsylvania Department of Education is now promoting the teacher of, teaching of gender ideology in its classrooms, including a whole list of gender-neutral pronouns uh, distinct from traditional pronouns like oh, he, him, she, her, and they. But is it they? Well, we, we will get to this entire matter and why this kind of nuttiness is a political issue and should not be forgotten as such. Uh, there is so much to cover, and we are pleased to be able to cover it. There could be a resolution of the Alex Jones trial by then. And uh, justice, well, justice is worth fighting for in